0: This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, Go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. This morning, I want to thank uh, Dr. Holmes for inviting this uh, Bible preacher to come and preach in this Baptist chapel. Uh, It's a joy to be here with you. Uh, We're going to be in in Mark 12 here this morning, as you've already been told. But before we get into that, I have a confession to make to you. Uh, When Dr. Holmes told me that I could pick something from Mark 12, it excited me to see that there was a parable at the beginning of this chapter. And I'll explain to you why. I'll just confess here since I'm in chapel. Uh, I'm doing a study this year at our church on the parables of Jesus. And so I got really excited that I could recycle this sermon for the class. So I get a two-for-one deal here. Don't judge me on that. I know you pastors won't, right? You jump at the opportunity as I did. And uh, I heard Dr. Holmes say once that uh, if it's worth preaching once, it's worth preaching twice, right? So we'll see if this is worth preaching once first so you all can let me know afterwards, all right? Uh, Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at the parable of the tenants this morning. And I want to begin this morning by asking you a question Have you ever set out to accomplish something and things don't work as planned? Has that ever happened to you before? You had your mind set to do this certain thing and circumstances, maybe uh, outside of your control keep you from accomplishing your goal this happened to me a while back Uh, the church office was closed on a monday and so i had a list of things that i wanted to get done out in the yard and one of the major chores that i wanted to tackle was of course getting out and mowing the lawn we live on uh, three acres of land so that's a bit of a chore so i got up early and I gassed up my ride lawnmower and, and got on it, and it didn't start. Many of y'all ever had that happen? That's always a joy. And uh, so it, it it didn't start. I found out it was the battery, and so I had to run to Tyler, to Lowe's and and get a good battery there and then a series of of other things happened in addition to that that kept me from getting out into the yard my wife uh, found out that i was going to tyler and so she had a few errands for me to run as well that involved me taking two of my three girls and literally one thing after another happened and by the time i got home And finally got out on my mower to mow the lawn. I was losing daylight. I had the the best intentions. I had a list of things that I needed done. And I I, I got out early to try to get those things done. And I had barely scratched the surface at the end of the day. Y'all know how this feels, right? We see this happen a lot in our world today in sports you may have a a football team who have worked hard to put all the right pieces in place to make a run at the championship and their star quarterback goes down at the beginning of the season and their season is shot you baylor fans know what i'm talking about right making a jab at you guys in a church setting you may have someone who wants to head up a certain ministry and it's a it's a great ministry and they put a lot of time and effort in to help that ministry be successful and it fails this happens a lot doesn't it people with with good intentions setting out to accomplish great things and things don't go as planned well There are many in our world today who believe that that's what happened with Jesus. Many so-called scholars believe and have taught that though Jesus was this towering historical figure, though he was a remarkably skillful and extremely moral teacher, though he was a solid religious leader, with good intentions who stood for and set his mind to accomplish great things though that's the case his life ended in a tragic way he was killed tragically for his cause he died a martyr's death there are some who view Jesus in this way as this great revolutionary leader who opposed the established cold heartless unloving bigoted system of the day and as a result of that died a martyr's death for his cause they will admit that his impact has been undeniable because of what he stood for and what he stood against though he was killed they say that was not Necessarily in his plans, though he knew it could be a possibility, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr. He knew it could happen. It was not in his plans, but is what resulted. Believers, nothing could be further from the truth scripturally. We learn God's word that Christ was not surprised by his death in the least bit we are told by him his disciples were told by him his enemies were told by him that he was going to suffer and die and we're told by him and others in scripture that it was necessary for him to do so that's the reason why he came but many liberals today and i'm thinking in particular of our of our uh, good friends at the jesus seminar they have said that we should not really focus on Christ's death, but the life He lived and the cause He stood for, that cost Him His life. Now, we're to focus on His life, but His life as it leads to the cross and the significance of his crucifixion and resurrection. That was Jesus' focus. That's the focus of the gospel, and that is the central focus of God's Word. And there are so many places I could take you and show you this, but let's just stay here. Let's stay in the book of Mark. In Mark 8, Jesus not only tells about his death, but also his resurrection. Listen to verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 10 verse 33 and 34 Jesus tells his disciples we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will all condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise very specific here Jesus knew that his death was more than just a possibility. He knew he was going to die with absolute certainty. He says here, I'm going to be delivered over to the the Jewish religious leaders. I'm going to be condemned, handed over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me and three days later i will rise he knew that it was going to happen he knew when it was going to happen he knew the way in which it was going to happen and he knew why it had to happen mark ten forty five. for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that's the reason he came To give his life as a ransom. And in Mark 12, Jesus reveals once again this truth through a parable. Now, there are a few things that we need to know about this parable before we jump in. One, we need to know why Jesus tells this parable. And for those of you all who have studied the parables, or maybe you've done a study on the parables, or you've preached through the gospels of of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you know that in order to best answer that question, you have to look at the context surrounding the parable and answer the question of who Jesus audience is and what happened or what was said that prompted the parable. Well, let's talk about who Jesus is addressing here in Mark chapter 12. We learn in Mark chapter 11 that the audience here in Mark 12 are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And this story is being told to them in the temple. So let's Flip back, let's look at the end of Mark chapter 11 for just a moment. We're coming toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has already entered into Jerusalem and he has cleansed the temple for a second time. And we learn that after he does this, the chief priest and the scribes begin to look for a way to kill him they want to do away with them but they are fearful to do so because he is a gifted leader and and a popular teacher well we're told that after he cleanses the temple he leaves the city for a time and then he returns to jerusalem and he goes back into the temple and when he does He is met by these religious leaders and they throw this question out at him. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Driving out those who are buying and selling in the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers. By what authority are you doing that? By what authority are you teaching in and around this temple and in and around this city? By what authority are you doing that? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus, as he often did, answers their question with a question. He says, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing what I'm doing if you will tell me by what authority John the Baptist did what John the Baptist did. He basically asked them, was John's calling from God? Was his baptism from heaven or heaven? from man jesus here is aligning himself with john the baptist and his ministry and we know that happened early on right john the baptist had some sharp words for the religious leaders in his audience but when jesus shows up on the scene what does he say behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and then jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and Jesus and John the Baptist were, were functioning they were ministering outside of this religious umbrella and so Jesus is taking them back to John the Baptist and he asked them this question and they're faced with a big dilemma here because if they say that his calling is from God his baptism is from heaven, then they have a problem because they are clearly opposed to John the Baptist. And they're therefore opposed to God if they confess to that. But if they say that his baptism is not from heaven, his calling is not from God, they have another problem on their hands because many in the city believe John to be a prophet. So instead of answering one way or another, they choose to remain silent, which revealed to those looking on that they did not have pure motives. They were not really concerned with the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do and whether or not he had the authority to do it all they wanted to do was to trap him they probably wanted to hurt his popularity so that they could then arrest him and kill him and be done away with them without much kickback but instead they come off looking worse and on top of that we see here in mark 12 that jesus does provide an answer for himself and for them, and for the crowd, by telling a parable. In this parable, Jesus reveals who they are, and their motives, the religious leaders in the crowd, and who he truly is. Now, this is a very unique parable. It's an exception to most of the parables Jesus told, because the majority of parables you find in the New Testament, there are these Simple short stories with one main point and they do not possess a lot of allegorical meaning. This parable is one of the few exceptions. This is a longer more detailed parable. It's recorded in three of the four gospels and it reads much more like an allegory. We learn in this parable that the characters in this story represent certain individuals or groups of people. Again, that's not how you interpret most parables. Many have attempted to do this with other parables and have ended up way off point. An example of that would be the way Augustine interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan. You want an entertaining read, check that out he's got some good thoughts there he's just way off point way off point he doesn't handle that parable correctly but but this parable is a bit different it's it's an exception it's much more like an allegory in this story the landowner is clearly god the vineyard is israel the tenant farmers are the religious leaders who have been appointed to tend God's vineyard, God's people. The slaves or the servants that the landowner sends are God's prophets that he's been sending over the years. And of course the landowner's son is Jesus. And knowing all that should help you a great deal with this parable. This parable breaks up nicely into three parts. You first have the religious leader's opposition of God's Son. Then you have the religious leader's judgment from God's Word. And lastly, you have the religious leader's rejection of God's message. Okay, so there's your outline. You have their opposition of God's Son, their judgment from God's Word, and their rejection of God's Message. Notice first their opposition of God's Son. Remember they were questioning Jesus' credentials here. And so Jesus here, he tells them this parable and he is going to show them through this parable that they are the ones who stand in opposition toward God because they have rejected the one sent by him. Look at verses 1 and 2. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now. This story, though a bit foreign to us, is very, very understandable to anyone listening in Jesus' day. Parables give us a a window into the culture, okay? They, They show us what was going on at that time. Though they're a bit removed from us in our context, those in the crowd would have known what Jesus was talking about here. They lived in an agrarian society, and at this time, wealthy landowners would Farm out their land to what were called tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers would work the fields and would be given a percentage of the proceeds and would also give a good portion of the proceeds to the landowner the, the agreed upon amount who might be living nearby in a larger metropolitan area this is a very common practice this happened all the time and what these owners would do is they would send servants periodically to collect a certain portion of the produce that had been agreed upon by the owner and the tenant farmers and they might bring that produce back to the owner or they would sell it and bring the money to him and that's what the owner is hoping will happen in this story but what is shocking about this story are the actions of both the tenant farmers and the owner Look at verses 2 through 5. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed again he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another and him they killed and so with many others some they beat and some they kill now there are two things here that we see are very very shocking one is the wickedness of the tenant farmers and two is how patient and merciful and kind the owner is to them you see In this day, it was normally the other way around. You had the the tenant farmers who kept their word and worked hard and did their job and, and gave what they were supposed to give to the servants of the landowner or they would be removed. And it was the landowners who often abused their power and did not treat these tenant farmers very well. They were not very charitable to them. And they wanted to get a lot of production from them for very, very little. So the actions on both sides are are very shocking. Tenant farmers could be removed from their occupation if they were unruly in any way and oftentimes they were and they would be without a steady income and without a place to lay their head or something worse would happen i read where there were some landowners who actually hired assassins to take out unruly tenant farmers the the owners had the upper hand because they had all the resources. But but we are seeing here that these men are being unruly. And more than that, right? They're being downright wicked. They beat the owner's servants. And then sent them away with nothing. They struck them in the head. They treated them shamefully. And some of them, they killed. The wickedness of the tenant farmers is meant to shock us in this story. But again, what's even more shocking is the response of the landowner and you know that don't you I mean without even knowing the context you understand that don't you I mean be honest when you're when you're reading through this parable don't you just want to say to the landowner as you read verses 2 through 7 stop don't send any other servants they're going to respond in the exact same way don't give them any other chances Give them what they deserve, right? An eye for an eye. That's how any landowner at this time would have responded to this situation. That's the point. That's what Jesus wants his audience to feel. So that he can then, get this, highlight for them God's unparalleled patience. His great and matchless mercy his amazing and undeniable love well believe it or not jesus is not finished look at verses six through eight we see that the owner then does something even more shocking than sending his servants look at it he had still one other a beloved son Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the owner sends his son, the heir to the vineyard. And and we see here that these tenant farmers have completely lost sight of who they are and what they were appointed to do. Instead of submitting to the will of the owner, they were taking matters into their own hands. They were treating the vineyard as if it were their own, and they thought if we kill the son, the inheritance will be ours. Now, some preaching through this text have said, they probably thought the father was out of the picture. That, that that he had died. And that's why they thought if we kill the son, we will have the inheritance. But I think the emphasis here is on the fact that they have lost sight of the owner altogether. They have completely lost sight of the father. And Jesus is telling this parable here. To show the religious leaders of his day... Same is true of you. They too were acting as if they were the ones in control. They were the ones in charge. They were the ones who had lost sight of God and His will. They were no longer acting as His servants, but as His enemies. They were opposed to John the Baptist, the one God had sent. They rejected Him and His message, and they were also rejecting God's Son. And in a few days, they would have Him taken out of the city and killed. And Jesus lets them know that their behavior is nothing new. This was not a recent development. They did not turn all of the sudden. Their fathers before them had mocked and beaten and killed God's servants and they because they refused to learn the lessons of their history and because of their stone cold and callous hearts acted in the exact same way when I read this parable I'm reminded of Stephen's sermon to the Hellenist Jews in Acts chapter 7 remember they accused Stephen of being an enemy of moses an enemy of god an enemy of the law and an enemy of the temple the four pillars of judaism and i always find it interesting that they mention moses before god kind of shows me where their priorities were and though stephen defends himself in this sermon on each of these points he also turns his finger back toward them and shows them that they're the ones who are God's enemies because they like their fathers before them have stood in opposition against the ones he has sent and he then gives them a history lesson he reminds them Stephen does that they have a history of rejecting God's appointed people he reminds them of Joseph's brothers remember them they they were jealous of and they rejected Joseph and they wanted to kill them kill him but being the nice brothers that they were they just sold him into slavery he reminds them that Moses tried to stand in on behalf of God's people when he was in Egypt and they rejected him and then they rejected him again after God used him to deliver them out of Egypt. Remember, while they're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, Stephen says that they turned their hearts away from Moses and from God and back toward Egypt. Egypt and then Stephen gets very colorful with his words he says in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and then of course he reminds them that they have also murdered they have betrayed they have murdered the righteous one God's man God's Messiah his son and then after that what happens they make the same mistake again they kill God's disciple Stephen this is a mistake they make Over and over again. And here in Mark 12, Jesus lets them know that they're gonna follow in their father's footsteps by killing another whom God had sent. But this time it's much more serious because they are gonna reject and they're going to kill his son. The religious leaders, like the tenant farmers, in the story that jesus told they have forgotten that they were called to be god's servants and are called to be subservient to his son they've lost sight of that and as a result of that they set themselves against god and against his son now what's the lesson for us here This morning as pastors and church leaders, as church members, can we lose sight in ministry of who we are and what we've been called to do and who's called us to do it? Can we? Can we lose sight of the fact that we are God's servants who are to be under the authority of His word and that Christ is the one who is the head of the church? Can we lose sight of that? You better believe it. There are lay people in our churches today who put a lot of requirements on the pastor. And very few, if any, are those things that God has called for that pastor to be and do in his church. There are are leaders in the church who act as if they are the head instead of Christ. Christ. And they will run off any and everyone who dares try to question them, especially if they use God's Word. You better never do that. There are a lot of churches today busy doing a lot of things, but very few who are spending a whole lot of time praying about it and doing what God has called for them to do and functioning in the way God has called for them to function. There's a whole lot of, this is what I think going on in church business meetings and very little of, this is what God's Word says. Listen, there are many in our churches today who are standing in the place of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders in this story. Like it or not, it's true. May that not be said of us. May we not lose sight of the fact that we are God's servants who are to be standing under the authority of God's word, and may we never lose sight of the fact that the church where we serve is Christ's church. Well, we gotta get moving. Point number two. Talked about the religious leaders' opposition of God's Son. Now let's talk about their judgment from God's Word. Though Christ has gone out of His way to highlight the great patience and mercy and grace and love of God, He also gives a word of judgment here. Look at verses 9-11. through Christ asks, What will the owner of the vineyard do? And we are told in the account in, in Matthew that they provide an answer for him. And here in Mark we have... Christ giving a a summary of what they said. He's repeating what they've said. He says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Then Jesus says this, Have you not read this scripture? And whenever he says that, that's just a stinging indictment. Of course they have read it. The stone that the builder rejected has... Become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So notice Jesus shifts gears a bit here. He moves from parable to prophecy and from the description of a vineyard to that of a building. He reminds the religious leaders in his audience of the consequences of rejecting God's appointed men and God's son. And he does so by taking them to the scriptures to Psalm 118. Now it's interesting that Jesus goes here because when He entered into Jerusalem, do you remember what the people were were saying in Mark chapter 11, verse 9? Many of you have it committed to memory, right? Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. You know where that's taken from? Psalm 118. Here He goes back to Psalm 118. It's almost like... Jesus is saying here. Do you not know what the rest of that psalm says about me? It says that I'm going to come in the name of the Lord. I'm going to come and usher in God's kingdom. And you leaders of Israel who are supposed to be God's servants. You builders are going to reject me. Which by the way is a colossal mistake for them. But as you know through that rejection... Through the works of evil men, through Christ's suffering and death and resurrection, God makes a way for many to be ransomed and enter into his kingdom. Christ becomes the cornerstone of God's kingdom. So, So here Jesus finally provides an answer for what's asked of him in Mark chapter 11 verse 28. They were asking, by what authority are you doing these things? Who are you? Christ says, I'm the cornerstone. The Messiah. The one whom God has sent. The one who has come to accomplish salvation and provide a way for people to be forgiven of sin and made right with God in a way for people to be brought in to God's kingdom. I am the cornerstone of the kingdom. And believers, Jesus being the cornerstone is great news for us, isn't it? It is. For those of us trusting in Him, He's the way into God's kingdom. So it's great news for us. But notice, it's bad news for those who reject Christ. In Matthew's account of this parable, he records that Jesus says in Matthew 21, 44, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's an old rabbinic saying that goes something like this. If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. And if a rock falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot, right? There are some in our world today who, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they are openly and adamantly opposed to Jesus. Jesus makes it clear if they continue. In that way, they will be broken. There are others who are indifferent toward Jesus. They say, well, I'm not you know outwardly and openly opposed to him i'm just not trusting in him alone for salvation they too will be crushed the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him we all have one of two choices In life, we make Christ our Lord and we enter into God's kingdom through faith and trust in Him alone, or we be crushed by Him. Two choices. We enter through the cornerstone of the kingdom or we are crushed by the cornerstone of the kingdom. God makes it very clear in His Word that the one He sent to save is the one who's returning to judge and to condemn. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He brought salvation, believers, and He's bringing judgment. We either turn to Him now and trust in Him alone for our salvation and urge others to do the same or we we face Him in His judgment on the last day. Well, what do the religious leaders do? How do they respond? Last point, quickly. We see in verse 12 and elsewhere that they rejected His message. So we've looked at the religious leaders' opposition of god's son their judgment from god's word and now notice quickly their rejection of god's message look at verse 12 and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told a parable against them so this allegorical language was not lost on them right and and we read earlier from Isaiah 5, Jesus is painting a, a similar picture to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5. So, so this language, this allegorical meaning, it was not lost on them, but we are told that they left him and went away. So how do they respond to him? Do they understand it? Yes. But Mark says they were still seeking to arrest him and would have done so had they not been afraid of what the people might do. So they're not afraid of God, they're not afraid of God's son, the righteous one, but of what the people might do. And in response, they leave him and went away for a time, but they would eventually get what they think they wanted. They would have him arrested and have him tried and killed. And by doing that, like we said earlier, they were just carrying out God's plan. Letter by letter, which is a reminder to us once again, God's purposes are going to be fulfilled, won't they? No matter what. The question has never been, nor will it ever be, whether or not God is going to succeed. He is. The question is whether or not we're going to be one of the faithful. That's the only question. God will accomplish His purposes through our obedience or through our disobedience. You want an example? Just look all throughout Scripture and you'll find it. Either way, His purposes are going to be fulfilled. I want to be one of the faithful, don't you? I don't want to stand in the place of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of this story. Do you? I want God to use my words though fallible... The works of my hands and feet, though flawed, to minister. I want to be faithful. I want him to accomplish his purposes through my obedience. And I hope you do as well. Would you pray with me?